calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, here's how Miro works. See? It's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinnie Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. What would motivate a man to brutally stab his wife and the mother of his children 44 times and then drown her in their swimming pool? This week, we dive deeper into this question with an audio edition of our original series, Judgment with Ashley Banfield. This week's episode tells the story of Scott Pallader, who was accused of doing just that, but claimed he had no memory of doing so because he was sleepwalking. Would he be able to convince a jury that he did not kill his wife in cold blood? This is Judgment of the Sleepwalking Killer. This is the Court TV Podcast. Domestic violence that results in murder tragically is all too common. In Phoenix, Arizona, it didn't even make headlines when Scott Felater stabbed his wife 44 times and then drowned her in the backyard swimming pool. What did make headlines was his defense for the brutal killing, that he was sleepwalking. Scott and Yarmila seemed to have fairly Typical marriage. This was a seemingly idyllic couple with a happy family. High school sweethearts, they converted to the Mormon faith together. Scott Flater, he had a bit of a quirky sense of humor that you had to know him a little bit to, to get some of that. He was an engineer by trade, so he was pretty methodical and thought things out. He was a Motorola engineer with uh, patents under his belt. 
Yarmelev had taught preschool. Scott was always very affectionate to his wife. Uh, they seemed to have a pretty good relationship. There wasn't any apparent tensions in the family from the outside. They had two kids who were high-achieving kids, and this seemed to be a very happy couple. You just don't think these are the kind of people who are going to end up in the middle of a horrible murder drama like this. I don't know. My neighbors, there was a bunch of yelling and screaming going on. I looked up the fence, and the husband just threw, I believe, the wife to the pool and looked like she holds her underwater. It comes out as a, what we call a hot call, it comes over the radio possible domestic violence, possible homicide in, in progress. The suspect was nowhere in sight. The victim was readily in sight. She was floating more towards the center of the pool, face down. I saw movement in the home. I could see that Scott Flater was walking down those stairs. I immediately, at gunpoint, ordered him onto the ground. I was handcuffing him that he said, what's wrong, what's going on? I'm down on the state department. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you a couple hands. You okay? Cold? Honestly, does that mean my wife is dead? Yeah. This is what's called a behavioral analysis interview. And the goal of the behavioral analysis interview is to really get a confession. Confession evidence is exceptionally powerful in trials. Obviously, you think I did it. I don't know what makes you think that. Well, because I had a neighbor staring at you watching you do it. That's why. Jeez. It's not whether you did it or not. It's not my concern. It's I want to know why. Understand it. You know, what could bring this on? I'm sorry. I don't remember doing it. You look at his interrogation immediately after he was taken into custody. This seems to be a man who was genuinely distraught and confused. Where did the blood on? What blood? Blood all over your neck. Here? Around on it. I didn't know there was blood on me. Something had to set this thing off. You know, you're a good person. You're a good family man. I'm afraid we was telling People don't just, I mean, something brings people on when they snap like this. I'm sorry, I just don't know. Okay, that's the way you want it. We're going to jail for first-degree murder. When I first saw him, I kept thinking, well, what's the defense to this? He has absolutely no memory of what happened. I had the family go through his whole history, and was there anything that he had did, anything that was unusual, anything at all that stood out that possibly could explain, you know, what happened. And his mother came up, you know, he used to be a sleepwalker. It led me to start talking to experts. The more we got into it, more showed him the research and more we talked to Scott and he came back. He said, maybe that's probably what happened. He says, that's the only thing I can think of because I have no memory. The sole defense in this case, the man was sleepwalking through the entire ordeal. I had an editor who called it the Hey Martha story, where you're reading the paper across the kitchen table from your wife and you go, Hey Martha, did you see this? This would be a case to watch. A very unique defense brought up in a case where the death penalty was on the table. When I learned that it became a death penalty case, 
make your stomach curdle because, you know, his life's on the line now. And you've got a defense that probably is going to be very hard to show to a jury. Good afternoon to uh, all of you. This individual here, the defendant, Scott Bullis Fowler, in a sense, baptized his wife, Jermel Fowler, into the afterlife. Juan Martinez entered courtrooms with basically a scorched earth mentality. He was going to burn anything and everybody who was affiliated with the defense to the ground. What he actually came with was this knife right here, as he stood right next to the pool pump. Again, it was painfully obvious to her as he began stabbing her over and over and over again. There was just no wider reason why Scott Fowler would have killed the woman that he loved more than anything else in the world. And for there to be a crime, there has to be more than just the act itself. There has to be intent. There was no intent to commit an act in this particular case, because at the time of this incident, Scott Fowler was in what is known as a somnolistic, autistic state. In short, he was sleepwalking in all the years of my practice, and I've handled other murder cases and cases of all kinds and all types, I've never had a case that was this difficult. To stab someone 44 times, someone who is screaming in pain, would that not have woken the man up? Scott Filater was accused of stabbing his wife 44 times and then drowning her. The defense he planned to argue was that he was sleepwalking. But the prosecution went first and laid out its case. Their objective? Tell the story of a brutal, premeditated killing that could not possibly have been the work of a sleepwalker. My name is Dr. Ann Buholtz. I'm a medical examiner for Maricopa County. There were multiple stab wounds. Um, they were scattered over the upper torso, the hands, the neck regions, the back of the neck, and also the upper to mid-back. I think what Juan Martinez wanted to do with the medical examiner on the stand, and he was known for this, was play on emotions. Get the jurors to see how harrowing this crime was. So you discuss every stab wound. How many stab wounds did you count? on the body through this There were a total of 44. And uh, some of them you, you uh, cataloged as uh, defensive Yes. There were multiple stab wounds to the hands, both right and left. Most of them were distributed on the palmer aspects or the soft part of the hand. You want the jury to understand what the suffering would have been like for someone not just being stabbed, but someone being stabbed and consciously trying to fight it off, trying to make it stop. And after he killed her, he then went into the garage area and he got a black trash bag, took off the pants, the Levi's that he was wearing, that had all the blood on it, that were blood spattered. He was wearing a couple of t-shirts, one that uh, had some sort of design in front, and he was also wearing one of the ones that uh, people of Mormon faith wear. They were all full of blood, and so he took those off. He found a Tupperware container, stuck the pants into the Tupperware container, took the T-shirts, stuck them into the Tupperware container, took the knife and the sheath belonging to that knife, and stuck it also in the Tupperware container. Then what he did is he went over to the Volvo, and as he opened the hatchback, 
he didn't just put the trash bag in there. What he did is he actually opened the wheel well where you put the spare tire, and that's where he put the trash bag. There is the elements of consciousness of guilt, stirring his bloody clothing and the knife in his car. The investigation revealed that there was a witness to this case. And this witness, his name is Greg Coons. And Mr. Coons is the next door neighbor that lives this side on this diagram. The neighbor, Greg Coons, he wanders out to the backyard, hears moaning, looks over the wall, and what he describes becomes key to the case. He is the one that sees Scott Felater walk over to his wife's body, then walk away. Then he sees a light upstairs, and then he sees Scott Felater stand at the sliding glass door. He sees Scott Felater shush his dog, then come downstairs, then put on gloves. Did he actually have them on, or was he pulling them on? He was pulling on. One, one hand was already on. He was pulling on the other. Did it appear to you like he was fumbling with the glove? Like, for example, he was putting the thumb in the little finger? Not or at all. Not at all. Just slipped it right on? Yes. The neighbor sees Scott lift up his wife by the arms, drag her to the pool, roll her in, and hold her head down underwater. How, how does he do it that when he puts her in the pool? He kneels down behind her and just pushes her into the water. Okay. Then what happens? He specifically grabs a hold of her head when she is in the water. And do you see what he does? At, with, with, and I'm thinking that he is grabbing hold of her head to hold it above water. And then I realize he's not holding it above water, he's holding it under the water. He really meant to finish her off, because flipping somebody in the pool and holding their head under is furthering the homicide. I know that's why this was a potential death penalty case beyond the numerous stab wounds. In reading your report, one of the things that came out was that you indicated that uh, in this particular case, it was death by drowning, correct? I, I certified the death as multiple stab wounds with drowning. Did she at least take one breath while she was in swimming pool? With the water in the sinuses, it gives that feeling of, yes, I would think that she had to take some kind of inspiration to have the water go into that portion of her nose. We're not even arguing in Mr. Flater's case about what the act actually was. He doesn't disagree that he killed his wife. The question is why. There was no reason or no motive for him to have stabbed her when he did. To show there was no motive, you know, I wanted to show basically people that knew Scott, that had been around him, that knew something about the family. It was difficult to see my friend and, and realize that he was being tried for a capital murder and wanting to help him in any way that I could, but also wanting to seek the truth. Each Sunday I had the opportunity to sit at the front of the congregation, facing the congregation, and it was not uncommon to see Scott and Yarn next to each other with uh, his arm around her. I mean, they always sat together as a family and seemed very uh, close. Putting the kids on the stand was a hard call, and I had gotten to know them quite a bit in preparing for the trial. You're aware that your dad has been charged with the first degree yes, murder of your, of your mother. Yes. It was heartbreaking for both of them, and they were both very talented kids. Megan was valedictorian of her class. We all loved each other, and we just tried to support each other as best as we could. Megan, you do love your dad, don't you? Yes. And you love your mom. 
Yes. It was harder for Megan, the daughter, uh, than it was for Michael, but it was still hard for both of them. But I thought, and they agreed, that a jury needed to hear from them. Was there anything in the relationship between your mom and dad that caused you to worry or be concerned about it because there was tension between them for any reason? No. Did you ever see them fight like No. Did you ever see them argue? No. And up until the time you went to sleep, did you hear any noise or disturbance downstairs? No. Did you hear anyone fighting or screaming or yelling or anything? No. I take it, Michael, that was the last time you saw your mom. Okay. Yeah. They were there that night. They didn't see anything that would be a basis for him to stab her. Why would you put on gloves after the murder rather than before? Why would you not try to hide the body rather than leave it in a pool, which is obvious and lit? For a very intelligent man, this was very illogical behavior. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sleepwalking might seem like a bizarre defense for murder, but it has worked before. In 1987, a Canadian man bludgeoned his mother-in-law with a tire iron and then stabbed her multiple times, killing her. He claimed he was sleepwalking, and a jury set him free. In Phoenix, Arizona, the question was whether a sleepwalking defense would also work for Scott Filater. Scott had absolutely no memory at all. And that led me to put on a sleepwalking defense. I had to have experts to put on the stand to establish, you know, what sleepwalking is. What causes it? How does it happen? Can people be violent when they're sleepwalking? Sleepwalking is very common in children. 20% of children will have sleepwalking, and then most grow out of it. But there is a 3 to 4% of the adult population that will still have sleepwalking in their adult life. Sleep deprivation or poor sleep hygiene or physical stress or emotional stress or a combination of all of these can cause sleepwalking episodes. I do believe that Mr. Folliter was very stressed at work. He had emotional stress, physical stress. He was sleep deprived. Well, he was working long hours to get this project going, which was actually in the process of failing, and that was one of the things that concerned him. And he was trying to fall asleep at work, kind of just nod off. And so he started taking no-dose. And that could have actually had an impact on him. One of the things to show that Scott was a sleepwalker, you've got to do this particular test. They must have been looking for some consistencies in his physiological parameters. Probably one of the things that they were looking for in the Filator case was Delta Sleep. There is a lot of Delta Sleep in an adult who would have sleepwalking. The results of the test showed that he was a sleepwalker. That night, Scott and Yarmila were having dinner with the kids. It was a good dinner. Scott was extremely tired. After dinner, Scott Filator went out to fix 
the pool pump or try to fix the pool pump. His wife said that it was acting up and making noise. There's a rubber ring that he tries to dig out unsuccessfully. And uh, frustrated, he comes in and tells his wife, Yarmala, I'm sorry, I couldn't get it tonight. I'll fix it tomorrow. So he leaves his wife dozing in front of the television, and he goes upstairs to sleep. What I believe then happened is he then woke up in a sleepwalking state, put on his work clothes, and went out to the pool motor. One theory the defense had postulated was that maybe Scott, in his sleep, had figured out how to fix the pool pump. Scott later said he'd been using a screwdriver earlier in the night to try to dig out the ring. If the screwdriver didn't do the job, maybe a knife would. And maybe, just maybe, Yarmula went up to him as he was trying to fix the pool pump and startled him, and he reacted. Most sleepwalkers will experience fear, panic, aggressiveness, a lot of emotions that are negative. So if you do try to wake them up, it can be very dangerous. The things that can happen when you're sleepwalking, you can kill someone. People that are in a sleepwalking state that seem to be interrupted, many have a propensity to strike out and be violent, and they almost are operating on a dinosaur brain for a flee or fight. I think that even when his wife tried to wake him up and probably did in that confusional arousal state, stab his wife many times. I think the defense did uh, uh, an amazing job with what they had to work with. The sister of Scott comes forward with the tales of sleepwalking and him attacking her during a sleepwalking incident uh, earlier in their lives. He was at the kitchen turning the faucets on and messing around with everything around the sink. There were a lot of dirty dishes there and stuff. And um, he didn't answer me, and I just kind of stood there watching him. And then he moved toward the back door and turned the deadbolt lock so he couldn't get out. And, okay, go ahead. And when I did that, I brushed against him, and he turned around and lifted me up and just tossed me through the air. All of a sudden, he attacked her. And so she had an episode where he was violent with her, and he had absolutely no memory of it, doesn't ever remember any of it happening or even being in the kitchen. Michael Kimmerer, for the defense, is trying to give a seminar trying to give a quick graduate course on, on sleep science and try to get a jury to buy into this theory that this is possible. Doctor, your opinion as of today is that Scott Follier was in a sleepwalking state when he stabbed his wife. Is that correct? That's correct. One of the experts believed in Scott Follier's case so much that they were volunteering their services. Doctor, you indicated that one of the things that you looked at in reaching an opinion in this case that Scott was sleepwalking at the time he stabbed his wife was that many much of it was illogical or nonsensical. You remember that? Absolutely. It's one of the diagnostic criteria that it has to be a senseless act. And then some of these acts that you see for instance, the frenzied stabbing, is that almost nonsensical? Is that one of the things that's almost nonsensical about this, the number of all the wounds? Yes, of course. And would you describe to us some of the other things when you review the evidence and the facts, which make no sense to you in terms of the charge in this case? There was no logic to the behaviors really from start to finish as they were reported. Uh, why would you change clothes and then go down and move the body, which is going to get you bloody again? Why would you 
put on gloves after the murder rather than before? Why would you not try to hide the body rather than leave it in a pool, which is obvious and lit? Uh, why did the murder take place under the children's bedroom windows? I can't say that for a very intelligent man, this was a very illogical behavior. Do you know where the items were found, the, the knife and, and the rest of the items? I understand they were in his car in a Tupperware container. I'm indicating that he was hiding those items as a result of that he was not sleepwalking. Why would he package it so nicely in a plastic bag as opposed to a paper bag? I really don't know, but I know him to be a very fastidious and tidy person. Those habits were persisting in that state as well. In this case, one expert testifying on behalf of Scott Felater just genuinely believed this was a classic episode of a sleepwalking case that ended up in a violent crime. Your Honor, next witness will be the defendant, uh, Scott Felater. And I crawled up to her and <laughs> hugged her feet and begged her forgiveness. Scott Felater was on trial for his life, charged with stabbing his wife 44 times and then drowning her. It is rare for a killer to claim he was sleepwalking as a defense. It's also rare for a defendant to take the stand. But that is exactly what Scott Felater did. He took the stand. Your Honor, next witness will be the defendant, uh, Scott Felater. The probably rule 101 in law is to criminal law, you don't put your client on the stand. If the jury does not believe him, the case is over. Everything else you put on that means nothing. Scott, let me ask you, is there any reason at all that you're aware of why you would kill your wife and child? No, there's no way I could do that. Not intentionally. I loved her. How important is I don't know what I'm going to do without her. Um, she was probably virtually all of my emotional life. Uh, she... She provided a wonderful home gave me peace and stability always there that I could always count on. Home was always a, a haven for me. And that was her doing. You heard discussion here or inferences here that normally didn't want any more children and that you did. And this may somehow be the reason why you would kill her. You heard that suggestion they made in your life. Yes, I have. Is there any or any substance to that in any way at all. It is true that I would have liked more children. You've seen our children. I mean, they both turned out great kids. I've often joked that I was the uh, worst father in the world because I got the easiest kids to raise. Um, although, really, the reason they're so good is because of her. One of the things that was suggested here by Mr. Martinez is that your wife was abuse uh, no, I kind of like large women. Yeah, she might have been large, but she's always beautiful to me. Always. Scott looked like a meek and fairly mild Motorola engineer, father of two, who was stressed out on the job. 
I think he acquitted himself pretty well on the stand. Then there came this point where you accepted the fact that you were the one that had stabbed Yarmouth. Is that correct? Uh, yes. How do you feel about that stuff? I assume that I must have gone crazy or... Something in my head had broken. The one thing about Scott Felater, he's never really deviated from the story he told the night of his wife's horrific murder. Describe your remorse for me, Scott. The, the best way that I can explain it uh, is to tell you of a dream that I had perhaps a week or two after I was arrested here in the jail. In the dream, Aaron was a very tall, white statue in a long, flowing gown, sort of like an angel, except she wasn't moving. And I crawled up to her and hugged her feet and begged her forgiveness. I woke up at that point in the dream. And that's the way I feel. Still. Perhaps you knowingly killed your wife? No, not at all. I couldn't knowingly kill her. No one deserved it less of anyone that I know than her. Do you have any memory at all of stabbing? No, no, I do not remember doing that. I have nothing else, Sean. I think the newsroom was anticipating that Scott Felater's testimony would be something to see, that Juan Martinez would be vicious to him. You want a break? You know that she looked at the clock. I'm fine. Go ahead, sir. You want a break? The table. Juan Martinez's questioning was typically incessant and sarcastic. He loved to try to catch people in verbal missteps, which he could try to construe as a lie. One of the things that you told us is that when you would go to sleep, one of the things that you would do is you would turn off the phone, turn off the pager, and set your watch, correct? Yes. And that uh, your watch had a little bit of an alarm that would go off, correct? Yes. And that would wake you up, correct? That or my organizer, yes. Explain to me then, as you're stabbing your wife 44 <laughs> times and she's screaming and you're moving about, how it is that a little teeny tiny alarm on your hand can wake you up and her screaming can't? It didn't always wake me up, and I'm not a sleep doctor. I can't explain the difference, sir. One thing the jury had to wrestle with was this notion of maybe he stabbed her instinctively a couple times. But to stab someone 44 times, someone who is screaming in pain, would that not have woken the man up? And you also agreed that on that particular night, your pants got very bloody, right? Uh, it certainly looks that way, yes. And underneath there are your garments. You've seen the garments both upper and lower, right? Yes. If you're of the Latter-day Saints faith, you wear garments under your clothes. You hardly ever take them off. And Scott Felater said he only took them off when he was ready to shower or if they were dirty and he was ready to wash them. But he removes his temple garments and places them in the wheel well, along with the knife. And the question is, are these habitual or instinctive acts? Or is this the act of someone who was trying to hide evidence? My question is this, 
they're so sacred, the garments, they have to be kept on all the time. How did you know that they were soiled? He said, come on. You were sleep on. I am much less of an expert on sleepwalking than the other people have testified. I really can't give you a good answer to that. Juan Martinez tried to rattle him. He did all of his tricks. He tried to do it. But Scott, I think, got through it. Sleepwalkers simply do not uh, uh, have any motivation to, to, to conceal anything. But you wouldn't put the body in the swimming pool for your children to find when they woke up, would you? I have no idea. I wouldn't murder my wife either. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. In Arizona's sleepwalker trial, the defense put sleep experts on the stand who believed that Scott Felater was sleepwalking when he killed his wife. But during its rebuttal, the prosecution called some sleep experts of their own. One of them in particular had a very different interpretation of the events surrounding that night. What is your opinion as to whether or not, back on January 16th of 1997, when he stabbed his wife, whether or not the defendant was sleepwalking? I think all the evidence says he was awake, and uh, all the evidence says uh, his behaviors were far too complicated to be uh, sleepwalking. There were dueling sleep experts the prosecution had the easier job. All Juan Martinez had to do was just poke a few holes in this theory, and then the jury might not buy it. How about the fact that there are two different types of lethal force here? He used a knife, and then he, according to accounts, held it down with two hands in the pool. The only way that sleep specialists think that violence can happen uh, with a sleepwalker uh, is that somebody confronts them physically confronts them, gets in their way. Now, that's clearly impossible on, on the second episode of violence. Uh, the victim was laying there uh, near death. Uh, clearly, she didn't get up and get, get in his way. She didn't grab him. She didn't stop him. In all cases of sleepwalking violence that I'm aware of, the victim comes to the sleepwalker. The sleepwalker doesn't come to the victim. I do believe that Mr. Folliter could have been asleep and, you know, he's in that confusional arousal state. However, it lasted too long for me to believe that he did all of that during his sleep. I believe at some point he had to have come to normal waking consciousness and realize what he did and possibly panic. I draw the line where he put her in the pool. Returning to the body, 
uh, is, a, is simply an impossible act for a sleepwalker. Since they're unable to form new memories while sleepwalking, sleepwalkers have no short-term memory, they wouldn't even know that they had attacked the person, much less know where the body, where the victim's body was uh, lying in the backyard. How about uh, a sleepwalker who's involved in two separate and distinct acts of lethal violence separated by 10, 15 minutes? Have you ever heard of anything like no, that? No, I don't believe there's... Uh, there's ever been uh, an incident uh, such as that. You think that that could happen while you were sleepwalking? Uh, I don't believe that uh, that's something that a sleepwalker could do. Uh, it shows uh, a lot of characteristics uh, of wakefulness and not of sleep. It seemed complicated looking at this trial. This idea of what a mind can tell the body to do while asleep is something that I think most people don't know. I, as a reporter, didn't know much about it. What other indications are that the defendant was not sleepwalking when this happened, when he, when he uh, stabbed his wife? Concealing the evidence. Tell me about that. Uh, sleepwalkers simply do not have any motivation to conceal anything. In this case, it seems all too well planned out. Does this make sense to you? I think it makes perfect sense uh, if the defendant was awake and was trying to kill his wife. I don't have anything. The experts obviously were critical in this case. That was my feeling from the beginning. I think the state's experts really had not the depth of knowledge or experience that uh, our experts did. You're saying that because he tried to conceal this evidence, this, again, is something which shows that he was trying to hide his guilt in this case. Is that right? Trying to hide the evidence, yes. Uh, sleepwalkers don't, don't hide things. Like, they wouldn't leave a body in a swimming pool, would they? Well, I think if they had, if they had the time to, to do something about it, they, they might not leave it. But you wouldn't put the body in the swimming pool for your children to find when they woke up, would you? I have no idea. I wouldn't murder my wife either. He didn't know the police were coming. I think there's every reason to believe he, he went inside and came outside twice. I don't see why he couldn't have come out a third time. You've been told over and over and over again. He was sleepwalking. He's a good man who worked hard and he was sleepwalking. That's what they want you to believe. What he actually did is he lured her out there, comes up behind her, puts his hand over her mouth. Can she speak now? Uh-uh. Then what does he do? He goes to her breast. This is the way the stab was up over and over and over and over again. For those of us who'd seen Juan Martinez in a courtroom before, didn't matter whether the camera was there. His audience was the jury, and he was very theatrical for the jury. He then goes over there, and he stands over her. But she's not dying quick enough for him. What if she survives? So what does he do? Immediately goes to get the gloves. I can't get dirty anymore because I've already cleaned up. So I go and get the gloves. I drag her down, put her in the pool. But this time, the problem is she's floating. She's not going to die. That's why he then uses both hands to make sure Hold your head down, now he's done the task. When the facts are brought out, it's impossible for him to have been sleepwalking. And I'm asking you to vote to convict him in first degree murder. Number one, it makes no sense for him to kill his wife because there's no motive. Number two, if he's gonna do it, you're certainly not gonna do it in your backyard with pool lights on, with a flashlight on, at a time in the evening when neighbors on both sides could easily be awake. 
That just simply makes no sense. You're not going to do it when you have your two kids in the house that you love dearly so they can see it happen. You're not going to leave the body in the pool for the kids to see the next morning. If you find that Scott Follater was sleepwalking at the time that he stabbed his wife, you have to find that his act was not voluntary because you have heard all the evidence that a sleepwalker does not have a conscious mind. He does not commit voluntary acts. And when you make that particular finding, I know that you will find that Scott Fowler is not guilty of any of the crimes charged. Thank you. When you look back over the testimony, you can really convince yourself that maybe he was asleep. And looking at some more testimony, you can convince yourself there's absolutely no way. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you may now go back to the jury room and the case is in your hands now. Thank you. I did have a hill to climb. I was really worried about getting the death penalty in the case. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been informed that you have a verdict. We, the jury, duly impanel and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant. After 18 days of testimony, Arizona's sleepwalker trial was in the hands of the jury. But would jurors buy the sleepwalking defense? And if not, would Scott Filater be sentenced to death? The verdict came early in the second day of deliberations. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been informed that you have a verdict. Is that true? Yes. yes. Okay, the clerk will please read and record the verdict. We, the jury, duly impanel and sworn in the above entitled action, upon our oaths do find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree. The jury, initially, they get into the jury room and they take a vote. And there were four of them who were willing to acquit Scott Filater to say he wasn't guilty. Then they had a few hours of arguing. Apparently, it got a little heated. The jury didn't buy the defense. They were out only eight hours, so they rejected it pretty quickly in a first-degree murder case. So what was it that did for you that said, no way, this couldn't have happened the way the defense claimed? Well, actually, I didn't find any of it absurd, to use that term. I found some parts of it very hard to believe. I cannot swallow that he was sleepwalking while he grabbed her hands and drug her to the pool and then swung her feet around, pushed her in, and held her head down. I can't swallow that. I think he could have been sleepwalking when he stabbed his wife. But when uh, he dragged the body, I think he woke up, and I think he panicked. How was it to sort through the expert, the dueling, so to speak, expert testimony? Sleep experts. Excruciating. The experts, they just confused me. The jury told us that the sleep experts were kind of a wash. They just figured, well, they're canceling each other out, so they pretty much dismissed them as evidence. You said that in the context of discussing motive, you talked about reasons for which this event occurred. What reasons did you come up with? We weren't able to come up with one. I really don't have a motive. Of course, if I'm having a relationship problem, uh, there's only two people that's going to know about it. That would be me and, and my girlfriend, or if I get remarried again, you know. Do you believe that Yarmila got justice today? I don't think there can be justice because she's dead. She's not here. So you can't say she got justice. I think that the, the system did what it was supposed to do. At this time in Arizona, it would be up to the judge to decide whether uh, the defendant would get life in prison or the death penalty. 
Judge Reinstein is a seasoned and uh, a wise man, and he consulted with the two people who really mattered at that point, and that was the Philater children. You want to see your dad get the death penalty? No. I want my father to have a license with the possibility of parole. You now know that your dad has been convicted. Do you think or love your dad less because of the fact that the jury has found him guilty to kill your father? No. And you still want your father in your life? Yes, I do. For virtually every day of his life, other than the night he murdered Yarmala, the defendant was an exemplary person. His children and Yarmala's mother have asked for leniency, and the defendant can still contribute to society as a member of the prison community in ways that most inmates cannot. Yarmala was a woman we all would have liked to know. She was independent, she was feisty, she was totally devoted to her children. But because of the defendant's cruel attack on her, she did not get to see her daughter graduate as valedictorian of her class. She did not get to see her son grow into the fine young man and good athlete that he is. Because of the court's finding that this was an especially cruel and heinous or depraved murder, and because of the defendant's actions after the stabbing, including dragging Yarmula's body to the pool, pushing her in, shoving her head under the water, and then attempting to conceal evidence, all of which involved reflection and consciousness, it is ordered the defendant be sentenced to serve the remainder of his natural life in the Department of Corrections. Dated this 10th day of January, year 2000, Ron Reinstein, judge of the Superior Court. He gave him life without parole. That was the wind of my mind. I was really worried about getting the death penalty in the case. Lord knows the uh, community was whipped up over it, and it was a horrific crime and grabbing headlines and time on TV. But the judge took a pause and said, who really matters here, the opinions of these children. And he followed their desire not to have their father put to death. Scott has a relationship with both of his children, especially Michael, who lives in Las Vegas and has chance to come and see him every now and then. Scott's in prison in Yuma, and he's a model prisoner there. He always wanted to be a teacher, and he set up a whole teaching program at Yuma Prison. I felt like that was the right sentence. And as much as I wanted to have compassion and have mercy for Scott, mercy can't rob justice. And I felt like at the end of the trial with the verdict and, and, and the sentencing, the justice had been done in this case. More than two decades after the murder of Yarmila Filater, questions still remain. What was the motive? Was the murder planned or was it a crime of passion? Only Scott Filater knows the answers or knows that he doesn't know the answers because to this day, he still maintains that he has no memory of murdering his wife. I'm Ashley Banfield. Thanks for watching. There you have it, one of the many truly fascinating cases from the Court TV trial archives. If you want to see more incredible trials, you can find the link in the show notes to the many trials Court TV has covered available to stream for free on our website. And be sure to tune into my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern, where we dive deeper into the biggest true crime stories from across the country. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. 
Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.